suppose I'm putting it at my level of investigation compared to theirs yes, in those days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Am I unfair? Maybe so, because I've got a lot more skill uh, in relation to an expertise of what I'll do today. But I know there are a number of gaps that should have been followed through by the investigators. Welcome to Murder Archives. I'm Emma Curtin and this is Episode 6 of Series 1, Fractured Silence, The Death of Norma Rees McLeod. In the last couple of episodes, we've got some sense of the kind of people the McLeods were. In this episode, we'll learn more about the police and the environment they were working in. How experienced were the detectives and how thorough was their investigation? As usual, we've added links in the episode description and you can find more information on our website, murderarchives.com.au. And if you want to email me about your theories, please do so, emma at murderarchives.com.au. Before we get into this episode, please leave a review for the podcast where you're listening and share it on social media or tell a friend who likes true crime stories. Only six years before Norma's death, a six-day police strike over wages and conditions resulted in the worst public riots Melbourne had ever seen. Without doubt, the community felt let down by the force. Despite the fact that the constabulary had been replaced almost entirely post-strike and the men at the detective level were not involved, it took many years before trust and respect were regained. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, the press reported on allegations of police incompetence and corruption, issues that still crop up today. The leader of the strike, Constable Brooks, spent much of his police career in the inner southeastern city of Paran, where support for the strike was strong. It's perhaps not surprising then that suspicion of the police was particularly keen in Turak, part of the city of Paran at the time of Norma's murder. Could this explain why Norman didn't want them involved? Was he worried about their level of competence? There's a chance it was more sinister. We'll come back to this idea a bit later. In terms of crimes in the 1920s, we might think of Melbourne's equivalent of the American gangsters, like Joseph Squizzy Taylor. But research suggests that crimes in this period were scarce compared with the violence of the booming 1880s. Homicide in the 20s accounted for two people per 100,000, a figure not much different from today's levels. From figures in recent years, of 219 states around the world, Australia is way down the bottom for murder rates at 179th. Yet in this post-strike period, the police were under enormous public pressure, not to mention high levels of scrutiny from the press, to protect the city from perceived crime sprees and to be accountable for their actions. As in Norma's case, suspicious deaths were referred to the criminal investigation branch. There was no homicide department until 1943. Chief of the criminal investigation branch at the time of Norma's death, as we know, was 55-year-old Superintendent William Walsh. Walsh had been superintendent for just over a year. 
he'd been promoted to the role despite objections from senior officers. To explain this point, at this time the Chief of Police, Commissioner Thomas Blamey, began focusing on merit rather than seniority in the promotion system, which didn't always go down well. Walsh's promotion suggests he'd earned his advancement due to his good work, but the fact that his fellow officers challenged his promotion raises the idea that maybe he wasn't well liked by his peers. Walsh lived in South Yarra, a suburb next to Turak with a similar social status. And as mentioned before, Walsh played bowls at the Turak Bowls Club, where Norman MacLeod also played. An association that, to me, can't be ignored. While Walsh would have had an overview of the MacLeod case, he wouldn't be involved in the groundwork. This would be left to his detectives. The detective in charge of the case was senior detective Arthur Lonsdale Lee, aged 41. He was supported by detectives Simpson, aged 31, McCarroll, aged 51, and McEwen, aged 27. All the detectives involved in Norma's case had begun their working lives as labourers. This was a common starting point for many policemen at the time. Historians argue that this was because physical skills were initially seen as more important than educational or intellectual skills. The level of society these policemen came from, combined with the fact that the force had been created to deal with what was termed the criminal class, usually associated with the working classes, meant that detectives often had difficulties when dealing with the upper and middle classes. I was raised on Agatha Christie novels, so I can't help thinking here of Chief Inspector Jap. He first appeared in the 1920 book The Mysterious Affair at Stiles and would have a recurring role in many of Christie's novels. He's a classic example of a working-class copper who climbed the career ladder but never really let go of his working-class roots. While Jap is fictional... Agatha Christie later wrote that he was a realistic reflection of those in the force and she wanted to defend the police against what she called unfair class-based criticisms they have to endure. As they say, art imitates life. But the post-war world of the 1920s saw the beginnings of blurred class lines in many community spheres, including the police. The emergence of cars created potentially uncomfortable encounters. Car owners at this time were wealthy citizens, and while they needed to abide by new road laws, these were not the class of people normally checked by police. A lovely quote from a turn-of-the-century parliamentarian about introducing new speed limits sums up an attitude that would linger. No constable should be at liberty to arrest a gentleman straight off the reel. All of this made me wonder how senior detective Lee and his associates would have dealt with a Turak family, particularly as potential suspects. Would they have handled the case in the same way if Norma were working class? A 1927 case involving Detective McCarroll would suggest not. After the body of 25-year-old waitress Eileen Clark was found near Frankston, one man was questioned for several hours and a woman was ultimately arrested after three hours of interrogation. Both suspects were working class.
Although the charges were later withdrawn and another case went unsolved, the tactics applied seemed much more severe than those adopted in the McLeod case. According to their police records, all the detectives involved in Norma's case were known for their tact, although the careers wouldn't be without controversy, but more of that later. Was there tact why these detectives were assigned the McLeod case, in the hope they would deal diplomatically with the delicate circumstances experienced by their so-called betters? But what about their level of experience? Detective McEwen was the least experienced. At 27, he'd only been in the criminal investigation branch for five months before Norma's death. I can only imagine how he might have responded faced with solving the death of a woman only two years older than him and in a social environment so different to his own. With the exception of Detective McCarroll, the officers assigned to the McLeod case appear to have only limited experience with murder or manslaughter. So I couldn't help wondering about their level of competence. Why did there seem to be so many holes in the investigation of Norma's death? Retired Detective Charlie Bazina gave me some insight here in terms of the level of expertise among the police at this time. Going back, you know, Homicide Squad was formed in 1943. In the, in the 1930s, they didn't have a specialist investigation unit like we have today. So basically we can look at and say, well, when this investigation was commenced, It was by general detectives based at Russell Street. They would have been detectives doing burglaries, rapes, arsons, thefts, you name it, just a general detective. And it wasn't, as I said, till 1943 that the uh, Victoria Police said, well, we need to have specialist squads. Being a specialist investigator, you become very um, open to having a more open mind of looking at all different aspects and looking at uh, where the investigation is going to take you. So given the workload in those days... There were things that were done, things that weren't done. That specialist investigator really pushes the the envelope today than it didn't do in those days. And yes, I'm back to that question again. Why had the police apparently not interviewed Rhys? Surely he would have been an important contributor to any investigations into potential motives for Norma's death. Dr James Major, who had been at Norma's bedside on the day of her death, wasn't interviewed either. Why not? The other doctors had been questioned. Again, I asked Charlie Bazzina for his thoughts. There were so many of these things that weren't apparently followed up on. Questions that weren't asked. But again, it may just be that the materials disappeared. That's that's true, or laziness from the from yeah. the police and just saying, you know what, yeah, that and they've just made their own conclusion. Look, we won't worry about that. They didn't have the sophistication we have of today and accountability in those days. And who's going to question us anyway? Because yeah. we are the investigators. And if, if family are involved, who's going to be pushing uh, things of saying, well, I don't think you've done a good job on this? One of the things that I touch on is the fact that Edith apparently didn't speak to the police for two weeks after mm. Norma's death. Would that be normal? Look, it's not normal because we're trying to um, – document uh, witnesses on statement form, if nothing else, because we know that they can get then get corrupted. The best evidence, and sometimes you're hamstrung from a, from a psychological perspective. Look, she's so distraught, found her daughter in this particular way, and she just can't put two words together. She's breaking down every five minutes. What value is it 
to get try and sit someone down and not forcibly take a statement from them, but at least have a conversation. Take a few dot point forms. It's the old story. If you're going to lie, you're going to have to have a good memory. So investigators doing their job properly and say, okay, I'm not going to take a statement, but just I want you to just run through them to me and I'll just see you take a few little notes before I take a formal statement when you're a lot better. But it's so crucial in those early stages to commit witnesses to paper in relation to either notes at the time. Today we tape record it, make it a lot easier without taking copious notes. But yeah, look, that would have been unusual, but that would have been drawn on the fact that she was protected by her, her husband to say she's not up to it. Mm. And he was then either sending information from her to the investigators and vetting it. So you'd have to say, well, I don't take that into account because, okay, you look at the will of people and the strength of their their will to say, well, you know, the mother, given the fact of her emotional state, that they make it break down all of a sudden and say, okay, well, I did it or I did this as opposed to being protected. So you look at that with a bit of trepidation and everything being filtered through him for that two-week period. So that would have been concerning. One of the things that I'm constantly picking up on is the fact that they didn't interview Reese, Norma's brother. Yeah, so That's um, a big hole. Look, mm. um, you would expect that all family members need to be accounted for because they are the first ones that have to be eliminated as persons of interest. Mm-hmm. Everyone is a person of interest slash suspect until you can convince yourself one way or the other through the evidence that either they're fully alibied. And that really was a big glaring issue for me reading the investigation file as you presented it uh, as to why he wasn't spoken to. He had so much to offer, the fact that he lived in the household, uh, what was his relationship, we just don't know. And uh, the fact of, you know, the father was uh, allegedly in the city and actually visited him or did in fact take place, what is the alibi of the father. So that was a major, major gap that I just couldn't fathom why that wasn't in fact done. If it was done, why doesn't it appear in the investigation file? If it yeah. wasn't a statement, there'd be some notes from the detectives as there are other notes as we've seen. And the lack of that notation sort of raises eyebrows about the quality of the investigation. Why had the police focused on the cricket bat as the weapon to the exclusion of all others? Had they searched the grounds and vicinity for potential objects? Had the cricket bat been tested for fingerprints? And if so, were there any or had it been wiped clean? In fairness to the detectives, perhaps they had followed up on all these aspects and records have simply gone missing. Police historian Robert Haldane wrote that it wasn't unusual to find relevant reports and other documents missing during this period. But it seemed odd to me that some would remain, even down to envelopes used to send letters to police, while other material was lost. And I can't escape the police fixation on Edith MacLeod, to the apparent exclusion of all other suspects. Did they explore all other possibilities before fixing their ideas? I have my doubts. To me, the following statement in the Herald said a lot. The detectives are marking time until they can have an interview with the dead girl's mother. The words marking time sum up for me what police seem to be doing, and I'm not alone in thinking this. At the time of Norma's death, her cousin, Dr Jock Williams, stated... The detectives formed an opinion as to how the deceased met her death before they'd even made any inquiries. Was it a coincidence that 17 years earlier, Detective Lee had been accused and acquitted of assault and noted for his act now, ask questions later attitude? This was in January 1912 and Lee was charged with the assault of William Banks, 
Banks had apparently been trying to stop a fight when someone called the police. According to Banks, Lee had struck him violently on the head with his baton before even asking what had happened. In his defence, Lee argued that Banks was in fact angrily wielding a crowbar. The incident didn't raise a mention in Lee's record of conduct. In fact, there were no entries for 1912 and the case was dismissed. But it made me wonder if Lee was quick to jump to conclusions. Or, on the flip side, were his instincts on the mark and his responses quick? As for the other detectives, I discovered that in at least two murder cases, Detective McCarroll had hastily focused on the person who seemed to him the most likely suspect, only to be proved wrong on one occasion and failing to provide enough evidence on the other. It was early 1918. McCarroll had been sent from Melbourne to investigate the shotgun murder of James Barclay of Woonungatta Station near Mansfield. After making his inquiries, McCarroll concluded that Barclay had been shot by one of his employees, John Bamford. Bamford couldn't be found and McCarroll believed he was on the run. He made a statement to this effect at the inquest, which returned an open verdict. However, months later, John Bamford's body was found, buried under a pile of logs in the bush. He too had been shot. Another mystery remains unsolved. And only a year before Norma's death, McCarroll was commended for the arrest of Ernest Kleinhurt for the murder of a Mrs Sampson. However, Kleinhurt protested his innocence and with little evidence to go on, he was acquitted. Finally, Detective Simpson, along with five other detectives, would be accused in 1931 of the wrongful arrest of Edward James Wilson on two false charges of theft. All were acquitted. This didn't seem to affect Simpson's record. By 1953, he would be a chief inspector and later chief police liaison during Queen Elizabeth II's Australian visit. More generally, members of the police were still being accused in the press of lazy intimidation tactics well into the 1930s. One Argus editorial stated, It is a temptation to inefficient police to procure convictions by the rough-and-ready method of extorting confessions rather than ascertain the truth by painstaking investigation. Norma's cousin, Dr Jock Williams, obviously had so little faith in the police methods that he conducted his own inquiries, stating at the inquest that he had interviewed several witnesses in connection with the case. Sadly, there's no record of what he discovered. Presumably, nothing to help Edith's defence, as nothing came to light. But Dr Jock was a fly in the ointment for the detectives. I discovered a note in the police files that summed up their view of him. Dr Williams is the general advisor to the McLeod family in this case. Any defence put up is schemed by this man. He'll try and stretch the times out or hours to suit Mrs McLeod. Obviously, the police saw Jock as manipulating the situation with his scheming to shield his guilty aunt. Jock may not have known for sure that Edith hadn't attacked Norma, but he would have known her character and seemed to believe that she couldn't have done it. Acting as her informal defence, 
his pushing back against the police's circumstantial evidence may have gone a long way to protecting Edith from succumbing to pressure, perhaps ultimately to confessing to something she may or may not have done. So were the detectives stumbling in the dark and looking for a quick fix in a context of extreme public pressure to solve crimes quickly? Did they focus on the most obvious suspect, the person who had discovered Norma unconscious, regardless of other candidates? And why wasn't more done to identify Asmodeus? Charlie Bazina added his thoughts. Whilst he didn't come to the police, why didn't the police go to him? Not knowing who he was, he was using an alias, and given that, to say, well, no, we can then tap him on the shoulder and say, I think you are the person we need to speak to, be it the fact that he's told him the route that he takes, how often he takes it, he's told him he goes to court, they could have quite easily set something up as surveillance or been there every day because he appeared to be so crucial for the sheer reason of having specifics. And my normal reaction would have been, you know what, guys, let's get into scruffies, get into our jeans, let's just be wandering around. Got his description with a walking stick. This could have been quite easily identifiable and made the approach and then go from there and say, well, we need to speak to you badly. And then we can go back to the house and start looking at handwriting samples to try and prove it was him. But what is your motive? And what skills did the police really possess? As I've already mentioned, their personal experience in murder cases was limited. And researchers argue at this time the police weren't specifically trained for the work or provided with the forensic knowledge we take for granted today. So were the detectives doing the best they could with the skills they had? It's worth noting that on his death in 1942, Senior Detective Lee was commended for his reputation as an outstanding criminal investigator who was scrupulously fair to defendants. Had Lee's skills simply improved over the years, or had he been an outstanding criminal investigator in 1929, hampered by more powerful forces in play? I've already raised the issue of Norman's relationship with Superintendent Walsh. Did this stretch to a favour or two? Suppression of information and pressure on the subordinates to go easy? I discovered that at least one of the detectives, McCarroll, was not above turning a blind eye when necessary. Seven years after Norma's death, he would become enmeshed in a scandal involving his superintendent. Not Walsh, but a man called John Brophy. This would ultimately lead to a royal commission. While McCarroll was on the periphery of the scandal, he and several senior officers helped cover it up. So could McCarroll and his fellow officers have turned a blind eye in the McLeod case, under instruction from their superiors? Was the focus on Edith an attempt to appease the public with a show of action, with the full knowledge behind the scenes that no coroner would find a reason to go to trial? It's possible. However earnest Detective Lee and his officers may have been, a direct order from above, not to push too hard, may have cramped their investigations. As I mentioned in earlier episodes, after Norma's death, the detectives were criticised by members of the public for not applying third-degree tactics to Edith and Reese. This was seen as special treatment. The prosecution case during the inquest was described as weak and 
Looking at the investigation almost 90 years later, retired detective Charlie Bazina believed the inquisitorial process was soft in terms of cross-examination. It's possible the coroner went easy on Edith because of her status. More seriously, one anonymous letter writer accused the police of a cover-up because Norman MacLeod was a friend of the Chief Secretary of Victoria. Chief Secretary was a state government position with the holder responsible for the administration of Victorian government agencies, including the police. At the time of Norma's death, this position was held by Sir Stanley Argyle, who would later become Premier of Victoria in 1932. Sir Stanley was a year younger than Norman and certainly lived in the same part of Melbourne. In October 1920, he'd been elected to the Legislative Assembly in the seat of Turak and lived in Bruce Street, about two kilometres from Mandeville Crescent, where the MacLeods lived. So it doesn't seem impossible to think that Sir Stanley and Norman MacLeod's paths may have crossed, as suggested by the anonymous letter writer. Sir Stanley was also a medical man and an expert in X-ray technology which we know from the last episode Norman was fascinated with. Sir Stanley was Vice President of the British Medical Association, of which Dr James Major was a branch member. You might remember Dr Major was another of Norman's acquaintances and had been at Norma's bedside the day she died, but he was not interviewed by police. These seemed like close connections between the family, the medical fraternity and very senior state government figures. At the time of Norma's death, Dr Major was still married. He divorced in 1933, then marrying Trixie Williams, Norma's cousin. Of course, while it's hard to say for sure whether his relationship with Trixie in 1929 was more than a family friendship, it's possible that it was Trixie who'd called Dr Major to come to Norma's bedside. However, as a respected married man at the time, Dr Major may have wanted to avoid the attention and ensuing questions that would result from a police interview. Did he and Norman pull some strings in high places, as high as the Chief Secretary? Again, it's not beyond the realms of reason. But, and this is a big but, I couldn't find evidence to say for certain that Norman or Dr Major did know Sir Stanley or that they might have had a strong enough relationship to ensure that strings could be pulled, even if Sir Stanley were willing to oblige. He was known, after all, as a man of the utmost integrity. I'm just putting it out there as a possibility based on the anonymous tip provided to police at the time. As mentioned in the last episode, I also know that Norman was a Freemason. And again, it's not too far-fetched to think that he may have had Masonic brothers in the police force who might have helped him with his little difficulty. The historic link between Freemasonry and the police is well known. I asked Charlie Bazina about this. Look, I think given the fact of the position that the, uh, the father held, with different organisations. That would have had an influence in those days. You know, we talk about the Freemasons. I know that that had a long-lasting effect there within Victoria Police, even to my day in the uh, 
70s, 80s, non-existent at this stage, but you've got these organisations of that there is some sort of protection. You can read in between the lines. Whilst the evidence doesn't suggest that, you might say, well, okay, if they were part of the Freemasons or part of this other organisation and then some loyalty to protect those particular people, we don't want that coming out, that the family's involved in a heinous crime of murder and if there's a cover-up, is it a cover-up or just incompetence by mm-hmm. the by detectives? It was interesting to note that detectives, you know, quite readily were putting pressure on Edith uh, as a potential suspect, given the fact she's the last person to see her daughter alive. She was the one who found uh, the, her daughter mm-hmm. in that particular state. Yet again, my reading of it, that there wasn't any pressure put on these witnesses at an inquest, which is a whole different realm again. It goes from the police investigation realm to the justice realm or the coronial uh, sort of realm in there. So that sort of struck me a little bit to say they went softly, softly in relation to that. No one brought up the fact, well, hang on, why wasn't uh, Reese invo- interviewed? That statement is lacking. Why wasn't this happening? The times sort of didn't add up. They were all over the place from either's perspective. A number of shopkeepers weren't spoken to. And again, and even till today, there is no time limit on these investigations. So detectives Lee, Simpson, McCarroll and McEwen may have wished to interview Reese. We'll never know. They may have wished to push Norman and Edith further. They may have resented the privileges attached to those like the McLeods when it came to scrutiny. But perhaps a word from the top curbed their enthusiasm and frustrated further investigation. Or maybe my insinuations of a police cover-up are completely unfounded. I've got no specific evidence, just a hunch based on whisperings from the public at the time. But at the very least, Norman's rank and position in the Turak community may have given him a certain prestige, allowing him to apply a level of pressure to police officers who he would have seen as below him in status. To some, he was untouchable. Ignoring the possibility of a police whitewash for a minute... Without doubt, the McLeod family were keeping their secrets, and that in itself would have hindered the investigation. From all I read, Norma's family seemed to behave oddly after her death, quite different to how we'd expect a grieving family looking for justice to behave. I was surprised that they made so little fuss about getting the police to find the culprit. Far from it, as I mentioned in another episode, the McLeods didn't seem to want the police near them. Norman had even prevented his wife from talking to the police for a whole two weeks after Norma's death. Understandably, Edith was probably devastated by her daughter's death. But if she believed that a stranger had attacked Norma, surely she would have wanted to assist the police as soon as possible, regardless of her distress. As a mother, I'm sure I would... Indications are that Norman was calling the shots and keeping police at bay. Family impressions of Norman are of a controlling personality whose word was law. Was he preventing his wife from revealing something incriminating and giving her time to get her story straight? Other things didn't seem to add up either. Reese had told the press that Norma had slipped while having a bath, a statement that flew in the face of the evidence. Norman told journalists that his daughter must have been attacked by an intruder, also questionable given the evidence. Yet if he truly believed this, what efforts did he make to track this perpetrator? 
he'd hired a private investigator, but his focus was placed on retracing Edith's steps, not on interviewing those who'd apparently seen a man running from Mandeville Crescent that day. That would have been my focus. To me, the reality was Norman and Reese knew that the attack had not been committed by a random prowler, so why waste energy chasing some elusive stranger? Only Norma's cousin, Dr Jock Williams, seemed insistent, making it clear from the moment he saw her body that Norma had been murdered and that the police should investigate more thoroughly. The family's silence in the years after the incident also spoke volumes to me. Some of Norma's relatives, born after her death, knew nothing of how she died or anything about this mysterious relative. The subject had simply never come up. Those family members who had heard of Norma's death said it was mentioned only briefly in whispered tones. Often information was distorted, either deliberately or through the vagaries of time and memory. One descendant had hazy recollections of being told as a child that Norma had either fallen off a ladder in the kitchen or died in a golfing accident. Was this silence or distortion just a reflection of a time when respectable people didn't discuss their dirty laundry? Or was there a family secret too painful or too horrible to share? There are just too many anomalies, too many silences to suggest that the family were blameless. So what were they covering up? Join me next time as we present three possible scenarios for what may have happened to Norma on the 9th of September, 1929, and why. In the meantime, some more things to think about. Do you think the idea of a police cover-up is too far-fetched? Perhaps you've done some research into the police in this period that you'd like to share. Who do you think is the culprit? And of course, have I missed anything? Remember, if you want to share your thoughts, contact me by email anytime, emma at murderarchives.com.au.